so as we get started tonight, what I want to do is take the evening. Uh, you know, I, uh, every now and again, I kind of get a sense that we've been kind of content heavy. And so I want to try to give an opportunity for some interaction, feedback, um, you know, some things like that. So what we're going to do tonight, there's still going to be some good content, hopefully, some, some uh, content to chew on a little bit. But what I'd like to do is... Um, make this a little bit more interactive at least to the beginning and the end okay so um we have j just i would like the what we've talked about over the past few sessions and discussions to kind of settle into your mind and to work its way into your thinking okay so i i realize that as we've been going through this that for some of you um what we're going over maybe hitting the ears is something a little bit new hopefully it's not entirely new though uh or essentially new foundationally new because this is the gospel <laughs> so if it's foundationally and essentially new let's talk about the gospel with you and, and make sure you're saved um but uh you know we we haven't all thought uh, to some uh, depth. I, I realize some of us haven't considered the theology of the gospel as carefully as we would have liked to, because frankly, um, no one's really taken the time to do that with us before. Um, I know in my own personal history, that's certainly been the case. And uh, it, just because of my nature, I've kind of chased people down, grabbed them by the throat and said, explain this to me. You know, so I know that some of you are a lot much more gentle people. So you you've had to wait until now. Um, but uh, you can attest to the same thing that maybe you haven't thought as deeply about all this. So the game plan for tonight's session. First, we're going to review what we covered last time very briefly. And then second, I'm going to unpack the Ordo Salutis, which is order of salvation, Ordo Salutis, a bit further, clarify a few of the terms there, make some contrasts. I had hoped to get into the doctrine of justification by faith tonight, but I've decided to hold off on that until next week just to make sure that we're not trying to cram too much into one night because you know how prone I am to do that. So we're just going to make sure we're not trying to do too much. So we're going to round off the night with whatever time we have left by conducting a little Q&A. Uh, just make sure that we have clarity about the gospel. So again, slightly more interactive. We'll start with some questions for review. See how well you were listening and paying attention last time, all right? We spent the first part of the hour last week by learning about the problem that the Galatians faced with the Judaizers. Hopefully this is ringing a bell to you, all right? According to Galatians 6, 12 to 13, this Judaizing group had entered into the church after Paul left. They were motivated by a couple things, motivated by the fear of man, really, only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So they found a more palatable, palatable gospel uh, to spread in their area. And then secondly, they were motivated by spiritual pride that they may boast in your flesh. They wanted to count numbers and uh, talk about how many people were in their movement. Sounds very similar to things we see today. So here's the first question for you tonight, just by way of review. What was the practical, um, immediate demand that the Judaizers were making on these Galatian believers? Circumcision. Got to be circumcised. Good. What groups today um, make similar demands, which, you know, essentially adding circumcision to the gospel is adding works to the gospel, right? So what, what groups today call themselves Christian? What kind of human works do they want to add to the gospel that we resist because of justification by faith alone? Um, 
what kind of groups do that? What kind of demands do they make on us? Um, some churches require baptism. They think you have to be baptized. Okay. To be saved. Like that Church of Christ group I mentioned, yeah. So they require baptism. Good. Yes, Doug. Uh, there are groups of Judaizers still today doing the same thing. Okay. So do, uh, do they have a name? I don't know. They just say, well, they, they call themselves Messianic Jews. I don't know that that's. There are, I, I, I have heard. I haven't, I haven't personally encountered them. Well, her sister is one of them. <laughs> oh. It's great fun. Okay. Well, <laughs> if I can meet her one day, then I can say, well, I've personally encountered this. Yeah. But for, to this point, I haven't personally encountered some of those, uh, you know, Christian roots uh, or, or Hebrew roots of right. New Testament Christianity groups, you know, that yeah. they always want to. High holy days and, yeah. and food stuff is very important to them. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there, and there are groups. Yeah. They want you to get baptized where it's dangerous? But she had to go to Florida and... Be baptized by a rabbi. Oh, be baptized by a rabbi. I think they have rabbis here. Well, it didn't count. Didn't count. All right. So only Florida rabbis. (laughs) There are other formal groups that uh, are Judaizing groups. Like, do you have anybody know? Catholics. Okay, Roman Catholics. But I'm trying to think of one that's... They meet on Saturdays. Seven-day events. Right. They are, the, they are the preeminent Judaizing group that wants everybody to follow the law. Yeah. Was that what you were going to say, Brett? Good. Okay. So you said Roman Catholics. Get over here. I was told I wasn't saved because I hadn't spoken in tongues at a church. Interesting. So, so the, the charismatic groups, she was told she wasn't saved if she hadn't spoken in tongues. Yeah. yeah. So that can become... Where, where in so many Pentecostal or, or uh, charismatic groups, especially the charismatic side, they, they can be, they can come across as very freewheeling and anything goes, but if you haven't spoken in tongues, you're second class. Or, or slain by the Holy Spirit. That's slain by the Spirit, right. Yeah. yeah, Brett. Just knowing the date, you know, some, some churches you have to know the date that you were saved. So that means that there was some work that got you saved. Yeah. Okay, so knowing the date, um, pulling out your baptism card, opening it up and saying, there it is, right there, signed by a pastor. <laughs> Christian. Um, some, like, fundamental Baptists, I wouldn't say that they would necessarily say that you have to do these things to be saved, but they do measure your salvation by whether you do certain things and how you look on the outside or certain, like you were talking about music. <laughs> you know, if you play the drums... You know, right. You're not. You must not be saved. You right. Wrong, you know? <laughs> okay. Good. So there are some of those fundamentalist stripe Christian, like Baptists. A lot of them. A lot of them are Baptist groups, and they're very concerned. And anytime the church is open, you're expected to be there. You and your whole family all, you know, washed and clean and in a row, and everybody paying attention. And yeah, that's a. Uh, um, I mean, we'd love people to attend church here too, but it's okay if you miss once in a while. Um, were you raising your hand? No. Okay. Jehovah's Witness, they um, count it. I mean, Jehovah's Witness is more like a cult when you look into it, but they're like numbers. They're very numbers oriented. Like they go out and you know preach the gospel every Saturday, trying to get more members in, and that means that their rewards in heaven are going to be even greater. And that's, right. Like, It's all works oriented. It's all works oriented. So everything the Jehovah's Witnesses are doing are in order. You know, there was a line, uh, Dr. Walter Martin. I don't know if you've ever heard of Dr. Walter Martin, Kingdom of the Cults. He wrote that book. He's now with the Lord, but he, uh, it's a very good book. 
And uh, he was a Pentecostal pastor, I believe. Very thoughtful, helpful in so many things in the cults. But he had this line, and it got your attention. It was a good, you know, motto. He said, we Christians need to be willing to do for the truth what the cults are willing to do for a lie. And it caught your attention. But at the same time, I thought to myself, wait a minute. I know some of those cult groups and why they're doing what they're doing for a lie. Because they're terrified of the consequences if they don't. They don't have any confidence or assurance. They're driven by by fear. They're driven by no assurance. They're driven by bad theology. So I'm not sure if I, I like the line, but I don't think it's, um, it's not necessarily a comparison or a contrast I want to make between us and why we do what we do and why they do what they do. They're driven by completely fleshly lusts and desires and everything else. Can't do that. Still good book. Kingdom of the Cults. All right. So here's another question. Um, what is it that distinguished, we could say, um, well, let's start, start here. What distinguished the Christian Galatians from the heretical Judaizers? What, does, what was the key distinguishing, defining difference between the Christian Galatians and the Judaizing group? And we could, we could make the same comparison to say, let's say us in this room, you know, assuming all of us are saved. Okay, so us in this room and say a Jehovah's Witness group or Thanks. some of those other... Okay, so you said faith. They say they, they say they believe, too. It, it's the doctrine of being saved by grace, right? Not being bound uh, directly to the law and full and strict observance of all that stuff. Okay. Right? They believe that if you didn't observe, for example, the Passover perfectly, that affected your stature in Christ. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so being saved by grace alone. Talked about faith alone. Um, think in terms of what we discussed last time, and I know it's been a, a week, but in Galatians. Uh, what are the Galatians kind of terms in that distinctive? Um, Joe? I was kind of thinking like God did it rather than man did it. God did it rather than man did it. That, yeah, we're, we're hitting, <clears throat> we're going to be saying the same thing a number of different ways, and you all are getting exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Chuck? What counts as a new creation? <clears throat> Good. A heart changed by God. What counts as a new creation? That comes from Galatians 6, right? Okay, anybody else? Yeah, Scott? We walked by the Spirit. Okay, good. We walked by the flesh. Good, so the, and, and I put something similar to that in my notes, life by the Spirit. Life from start and continuance by the Holy Spirit, not by uh, the flesh. Scott? I was going there also, Galatians 3.3. 3. Um, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And for me to, I mean, moment by moment, wrapping my head around that, that it doesn't matter that I read my Bible for five minutes or 15 minutes, or I went to church, or I was kind <coughs> instead of being angry or whatever. That yeah. If there's something else to the real gospel, then what did I do and what did I, what did I not do? <coughs> right. So he said, I don't know if you could hear back there, but he said, um, having begun by the Spirit, Galatians 3.3, 3, are you now being perfected by the flesh, O foolish Galatians? So he's saying that you know, it doesn't matter if he's read his Bible for five or 15 minutes, if he's attended church once or three times in the week, or been nice rather than angry. Um, if it's not connected to life by the Spirit, it doesn't really matter. Now, it's not to say that those things are bad things to do. It's good to read your Bible more. It's good to attend church. It's good to be uh, not overcome by anger and be kind to other people in general and everything else. But if that's not connected to true spiritual life, 
prompted, motivated, stirred by the Holy Spirit, it counts for nothing. It really doesn't. It, that stuff can be faked and is faked all the time. Okay? So that's what we're trying to say. So when you say life by the Spirit, does that mean just that we're consciously thinking about doing um, things not as works but before the Lord be pleasing to Him with, with everything that we do? I would, say, I would say it's not always conscious. You're, you're not always consciously. Just like, um, I don't know, this is a bad analogy, but if you were to walk up to an oak tree and you look at the, 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 the leaves at the end of the tree and you say, oak tree, are you aware that the vitality for that leaf right there goes all the way through this little, uh, you know, tributary branch right here, goes on to this main branch, goes down the trunk, all the way down into the root system. It's all the way down and tapping into the, the nutrients in the soil and all the water that the life and the vitality of this leaf right here is coming from with the oak tree. So oak tree is like, I'm just growing, man. <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's similar for us. That is is that is that vitality coming? Is it sourced by the Holy Spirit, or is it not? So you're just talking about salvation, and you're talking about no. I'm talking about life by the Spirit. And that's why I said it that way. Life by the Spirit implies salvation at the start. Yes. So regeneration, salvation started initiated by God, but also continuing by the Holy Spirit continuing by that vitality like Jesus said in John 15 abide in me if you abide in me you abide in the vine you will be fruitful okay I don't want to get too far off okay sorry you can't help go to that verse though not by might nor by power but by thy spirit says the Lord you can't help but you can't and you just you just did (laughs) you could not help it (laughs) fantastic that's a great verse that's that's really good okay so You and I will carry on this later. (laughs) She's got that. She's got the wheels turning. Okay, so um, let me give you three variables. I'm going to ask you to construct a salvation equation. Okay, you're going to be able to get this, even if you're not good at math. Okay, here are the variables: salvation, works, faith. Using those three variables. Construct the equation according to what the Bible teaches. Do that first. Then secondly, construct that equation according to what the Judaizers and every other false religion teaches. Okay? Got the three elements? Who wants to raise their hand and give me the biblical equation? Raise your hand. Okay. Brett, I saw you first. Yeah, for the Judaizers. No, 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 for the Bible. Oh. You don't want to do that one? Yeah, that one's harder. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, I could do it. Um, no, no, no. We don't want to do that. We'll save you for the cult one. <laughs> the Bartonians. That's <laughs> just teasing. Uh, so, Wayne, I saw your, your hand next. Yeah, I'm, I'm venturing out a little bit here. Uh, salvation by faith equals works i.e. work should be the result, the fruit of the fact that you have the first two, salvation by faith. 
Okay, yeah. So an equation, there need, needs okay. to be something on one there, side. There's a multiplication by. Come on. Oh, times. <laughs> Okay. okay, so I'm not a mathematician, so there's an equal sign. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining an equal sign. Imagine a big equal sign up here in front of me. Who would like to raise their hand and give me the biblical version? You got three elements, salvation, faith, and works. Got an equal sign. What goes on this side and what goes on this side? Biblically, Joe. Faith equals salvation plus works. Okay, yes, thank you. Faith equals... Salvation plus works. Okay? Biblical. Brad, biblical. All right. You, you want to give the... Unbiblical? The unbiblical. Here's the equal sign. What goes on this side? Yeah. Uh, salvation. So faith plus works equals salvation. Faith plus works. Over here, salvation. Okay? That is the dividing line between us, between what the Bible teaches, and every other false religion. And frankly, there may be, as we tried to talk about last week, there may be some among us who have that a little bit in our practice, in our thinking. We got that a little bit reversed. So that's what we're trying to clarify and make sure that we're not communicating bad stuff, bad theology. Yeah. The hard thing about the right one is that it's actually salvation is the thing. And so then faith is actually a work that comes from salvation. Or, right? Or no. Okay. No. Um, <clears throat> no, faith. So we'll get into this more to clarify. Um, I think scratch the itch you're, you're feeling right there. Um, and to clarify that with justification by faith. Okay, so as we start to unpack that a bit more, I think that's going to get, uh, get where you're heading. Yeah. Okay. Uh, any other? Everybody got the equations down? What was the second one? Okay, so it's faith plus works equals salvation. Oh, yeah. Whereas with the biblical form is faith equals salvation plus works. Mm -hmm. You're saved, and then you are sanctified. Saved and sanctified. Um, starts with faith. You're justified by grace through faith alone. Okay? So we've got that much clear in our heads, hopefully. Um, should I, write, should I draw it on the board? No. Yes? So this is the biblical form here. Faith equals salvation plus works. We understand that there is a regeneration by the Holy Spirit that takes place. The first breath of life is faith. Repentance, it's all part of the same thing. But what comes out of that is justification, declared righteous by God. And that whole thing is conversion. What we talk about, we use, a, we use a summary term called conversion. It actually includes a number of elements in conversion. They're kind of all jammed in there and happen simultaneously. Regeneration, I mean, it kind of is at the end of the effectual call. There's a regenerating grace, causes us to be new creatures in Christ. We put faith in Christ, which of necessity forces us to turn our back on sin and self and Satan and the world. That's all happening in this. When we put faith in Christ, God imputes our sin to Christ, punishes him instead of us, and then he imputes Christ's righteousness to us so that we are in Christ's righteousness, so we're completely righteous before God. And he then declares us righteous. Declares us righteous. That's what justification means. 
to be declared righteous by God. It's a courtroom scene. Okay? <clears throat> when, when we're justified, that's saved. Okay? That we're, we're united to Christ in that whole process. And out of that then cascades a whole series of benefits. Adopted into the family of God. We're united by the Spirit to, to Christ and then to one another in the church. Uh, we're sealed for the day of redemption. That, that then begins, and that's life by the Spirit. That life comes by the Holy Spirit. What comes out of that life of the Spirit are works by the Spirit. Okay, so it's Spirit-generated works. Life grows out of that. You cannot have a fruitless Christian. That's a contradiction in terms. So someone who says, yeah, I believe and I'm saved, but I really have no use for doing any of the things that are prescribed in the Bible. That is a false Christian. That's someone who has not been converted because they don't understand really any of what this is about. So you need to go back to square one with them, help them understand the gospel. Because works of necessity come out of that. We're going to talk about that too with regard to does Paul contradict James and James contradict Paul? So we'll talk about that. Because James says, workless Faith is a dead faith. It's a demonic faith. So we'll, we'll, we'll get into that next time. This right here is what every other religion in the world teaches. And frankly, it creeps into some evangelical churches and they speak the same way. That's what we were trying to say last time as the Denver Church of Christ guy confronted me on, is my faith actually generated within me? And I had to study and come to understand, no, no, no. It comes by regeneration of the Holy Spirit, and I then have my eyes open to reality. I put my faith in Christ. But they say, faith, so believing, and for them it's an intellectual, um, it's an intellectual understanding and an intellectual sense of the truth, and then they get their will going. And their will starts right here with some kind of works, whether it's circumcision or baptism or church attendance or whatever. They start down the path of works, and this here, salvation, they have no assurance of that in the moment. They only have assurance of that when they finally get to the end. Salvation for them, or the word justification, does not mean declared righteous by God. It means proven to be righteous by God. Justification in that term is a final justification called a vindication. Okay, so this is vindication at the very end, and they don't even know it until they get there. They have no assurance of salvation. That's the difference. This is us. That's everyone else. Any questions? Yeah, Wes. Can you look at that second uh, equation and tell me where regeneration fits in that work? Do they classify a misidentification of regeneration near that works part? Well, the problem is they're kind of... Well, when you get to the cults, they have no idea what you're talking about with regeneration or new birth. They don't know what you're talking about. When you get into some very hyper-Arminian groups, they, they know what we're talking about with regeneration, but they redefine it. So that's where we're going to talk a little bit about tonight, prevenient grace. So they want to find some regenerative work in prevenient grace, um, but they think that the full new birth happens after you believe. Okay, so you do your part, God does his part. We'll get to that in a second, though. Um, but, the, you know, so yeah, there's a, 
you get into some strange definitions and some philosophical definitions of regeneration that don't actually square with scripture. Is that where the popular um, do your best, let God do the rest thing comes from? Do your best and let God do the rest. That sounds, that sounds, I mean, if you took that phrase back into Luther's day, he would have recognized that. That's Catholic. Is it? Mm-hmm. That's Catholic. I mean, that's like a common thing that grew up, I grew up with in the 90s. Grew up with the nineties. Was on a was on a bracelet. Yeah, huh, it was. You should, you got the wrong bracelet. I think there's a what would Jesus do, and then there's a do your best, God do the rest. If you got one on either arm, depending on how you wake up. You're like, oh, what would Jesus do? And you look at the other, you're like do your best, and God will do the rest. That's what Jesus would do, right? Yeah. No. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> little footnote, quit buying Christian junk, okay? All that Christian hardware and all that kind of stuff, just don't buy that anymore. Except Route 66 t-shirts, those are pretty cool. Those are cool. <laughs> oh, Bruce has got one on back there. Yeah, Bruce. You know, that almost sounds like when I think of that expression. Do your best, and God will do the rest. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, that sounds. That's got works written all over. Yeah, but what? Um, but works for my for my salvation. No, it, it absolutely is works. I mean, there's no doubt. There's no denying that that it's works. But in the, let me without getting too far off track. We're off track, but let's <laughs> too far too much further. Um, this is meant to be interactive, so. The do your best and let God do the rest. So that that ha- back in um, Luther's day in the medieval church, medieval Roman Catholic church, there was a pastoral concern behind that kind of a statement, because for let's say for the high IQ, do your best looks very different from someone who's maybe not as intelligent or someone who's very wealthy. Do your best looks a lot different than someone who's just eking out a living, trying to hoe potatoes or whatever. They're just having a hard time. So a priest could look pastorally at two congregates and say, look, God just wants you in your heart of hearts to be doing your best. That's the kind of pastoral tenderness, you might say, that he had toward people because he didn't want to make the, the wealthy intellect, you know, high intellect, wealthy person, the standard for everybody in his parish. That was discouraging to some people. So do your best. God will take care of the rest. That's, that was the counsel, the pastoral counsel that was given. So everybody was just cranking up to do their best. And you could get ahead if you bought an indulgence. You can get ahead if you... You know, prayed some different prayers, gave money to the church, whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's part of it. It's part of it. So it is very Catholic. And so I don't know if you heard that in evangelical, in evangelical church, but that's a Baptist church. You see what I'm saying? She heard it in a Baptist church. That's what I'm trying to say is that this stuff right here creeps into our nice, safe, completely solid churches. It does. It happens. Okay. She's clarifying over here. Yes. Yeah, I just, you know, one of the things that always got me was in Matthew 7 where, you know, Christ is uh, talking uh, to uh, the people, Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will I enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
And he goes, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many worse in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of all lawlessness. It just really seems like, what were they taking their stand on? Their works. Right. We did all these things, but Christ turns to them and says, I never knew you. We never had a relationship. Right. And so it kind of really helps even clarify to me that faith equals salvation mm -hmm. and then works. Okay. So let, let's go back to Matthew 7 there where, you say, where he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, is the hearer who hears Jesus say, who, hear, heard, who heard Jesus say that, the one who heard him say that, is he to run out and try to do the will of his Father in heaven even better? Back up in the Sermon on the Mount to Matthew 5, 48, and what do he say? Be therefore perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You know what that Sermon on the Mount, at least in the first part of it, was meant to do? It was meant to drive the hearers to despair, to drive them to despair of their own efforts, to say, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And they were all supposed to collectively say, I've blown it already. I'm not perfect. You're right on the right track. <laughs> because what did Jesus say when he, you know, what is it to do the will of his father in heaven? It's to believe on the one whom he sent, right? Because he perfected all the law. He was perfect as his heavenly father is perfect. So if we believe in him, if we put all our confidence in him, all of our trust in him, all of our sin is cast on him at the cross, all of his righteousness is placed on us. That's the exchange. That's imputation. Imputation then leads to God being able to drop the gavel in honesty as a just judge and say, justified, declared righteous. Because there's an actual righteousness there. Not ours, but his, covering us. Okay? We'll get to that a bit more next week. What's the verse that says that, that this is the will of God, that you believe on him whom you sent? It's in John 3, right? John 3. Yeah, so I, I think so. So I, I think that's the one, but I'm going to keep on moving. Okay, so we've got uh, this much clear in our heads, hopefully. And I want to take you back to what I said last, last week. Remember that uh, my friend, that provocateur from the Denver Church of Christ? And remember how he challenged my, um, my view that faith is not a human work. Remember that? How he, he challenged that view. I said it's not a human work. He said, oh, wait a minute. Biblically speaking, what is our defense against the charge of any modern-day Judaizing group any religion based in human works like the Denver Church of Christ, Roman Catholic Church, whatever. What is our defense? What's our apologetic when they charge us with making, with saying, you know, we say faith equals salvation plus works and works, you got works on the wrong side of the equation, pal. And they say, oh no, your faith is a work. What's our, or what's our defense to them? Why do we insist that our own response to the gospel, whether it's faith, repentance, prayer, is not a human work. Why do we insist that? Because it's a direct opposition. Because it isn't. It, okay. It's not a human work. It's <laughs> so it's Chuck is going to say no, it isn't, and he's going to say yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. No, you are, but am I? And then I'm going to say I'm right. 
<laughs> My dad can beat up your dad. He's she has a right answer. Lori. Well, and then I would say, well, how about Ephesians 2 8 and 9? That the faith is a gift of God, not because of works. Okay. All right. Good. So you're going you're gonna to say, even my faith is not generated from, in, from me. It's, it's a gift of God. Okay. Good. Yeah, Brett. You have to back up in Ephesians where it says we're dead in our trespassing. Right. God, God regenerated us. And it was, we're dead. There's nothing in us that we do it. Okay. So, great. You have to back up in Ephesians. I'm, I'm so glad you said that, Brett, because it gives me an opportunity to say this. As much as I love Awana, and I love Awana, parents, teach your kids the context. Sometimes we get wrote things in our heads and you just spout out verses and without understanding the context before and after what leads to this how does this connect to the rest of the argument that Paul's making or any other writers making we're sometimes divorced from the context we take those things out of context we just throw you know use them as mottos like what would Jesus do <laughs> you know <laughs> by grace you've been saved through faith they don't have any idea what that means alright I see that hand yeah I thought of two different ones, the woman at the well, where she came to the Lord, and um, where does God who is at work in you will be willing to work for his good pleasures? I'm not sure where that's that's in Philippians 2. We'll get to that in a second. So thank you for bringing that up. Yes. God is at work. Yeah. And behind you, the little guy with a very, very big name. I would say that what they did was wrong and that they should repent and see what they have actually been doing in the right way. Good. Yeah. So you're just going to go right to the jugular, right to the heart of the matter. Oh, come here. That's good. You got an evangelist budding right here, right here in your home. It's awesome. All right. I thought I saw. Yeah, Bruce. You know, you've got me thinking about First Thessalonians chapter one, um, where it says, for we know, brother, that love by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not in word, but also in power. And then the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know, it's definitely the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not faith that I somehow conjured up in myself. Great. Good. So if you didn't hear him, go to 1 Thessalonians 1 yeah. and see what made the difference with the, with, Thess with the Thessalonians. It's the same thing that made the difference with the Galatians. Oh, yeah, and by the way, the Romans. And oh, by the way, Ephesians. You go through the entire New Testament. It's the working of the Spirit. It's the power of the working of the Spirit that makes the complete. It's God. It's God saving. And that makes all the difference. And that's what awakens us to faith. Um... Uh, Got to make it quick, guys. Uh, so to you two guys, Brett and then Scott. Brett yeah, first. John 6, yeah. No one can come to me unless the Father draws. Yeah, good. And I, yeah, I'm going to cover that too. That's that's excellent. No ability. No one can come. It's not just won't come. It's can't. Unable. That verb dunam dunam is talking about ability. I'm Scott. Rabbit hole. Okay. Alice in Wonderland. <clears throat> so. <laughs> What is, do anybody remember the definition that I gave last week uh, of what constitutes a human work? Can I, someone, someone give it to me. What? That which pleases God. Say again? That which we do that pleases God. Okay. I'm talking about um, a human work. When I say human, I mean what, that which we do that pleases God, that, um, 
a spirit-generated work pleases God. So I want to talk about, you know, just kind of circumscribe that to human-only work. Yes, Sherry. A human work is anything that finds its origin in man that merits and or <laughs> maintains God's approval. You know, I really like that definition. <laughs> Let's go with that. <laughs> so human work is anything that finds its origin in man, which merits and or maintains God's approval. And some of you were wanting me to say, comma, falsely so, or supposedly, or attempts to, attempts to merit and maintain God's approval. But it's any, a human way, and that's why, that's why I feel like it doesn't need the extra qualification, because I'm talking about a specifically human work. I'm not talking about a spirit-generated work. I'm talking about a human work. A human work that people try to, you know, all your righteous deeds are like filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. That's this. That's like taking anything that finds its origin in me and trying to offer that up to God and saying, here, be pleased with this. I've offered you, I've, I've baked you this wonderful cake. I know it's made out of stinking mud that I gathered from the cow pasture, but please be acceptable, you know, be, you know let this be an acceptable offering to you. No, it's like filthy, stinky, nasty stuff. Get it away from me. It makes God angry. So human work is anything that finds its origin in man. So depending on how we describe what faith is, our Denver Church of Christ friend can say, oh yeah, you're just talking about human works. You believe hard enough. It's come from you. And by believing hard enough, you earned your new birth. You earn the right to be called a child of God. That's, how, that's the terms I'll put it into. So, you've already mentioned Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I was going to say that's, how, that's definitely how we answer. Contextually, going back, as, you, as Brett said, going back to the deadness of the sinner and how but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, and then by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works. Galatians 6, 15, neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Galatians 2, uh, 3, 2 and 3, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or by hearing with faith? <laughs> Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That uh, last verse there tells us that even our sanctification is not a human work. Galatians 3.5 says even our sanctification doesn't depend on works of law. Rather, it comes from the Spirit by the instru instrumentality of hearing with faith. There's another verse. Uh, Carrie, I think you mentioned this. Philippians 2.12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That is to say, work to the outside what God has put inside, okay? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he's there back. He's the engine. God is the engine. His power is the engine behind our, our willing, behind our thoughts and our intentions, our motivations, bringing us to our will and then to come out to the outside in our work. So internally and externally, God is the one doing it. That's what I mean by life by the Spirit. It's a life that continues by the Holy Spirit. So the key reason, back to my Denver Church of Christ friend, the key reason that faith, repentance, the sinner's prayer, if you want to call it the sinner's prayer, I think the best sinner's prayer you find in the Bible is God be merciful to me, the sinner. That's a great sinner's prayer. 
But the reason none of those responses uh, that result in salvation can be called a human work is because they don't originate in the sinner. That's not where they start. When they, don't, they don't start until God regenerates, the regenerating grace of God. God regenerates the sinner. He sends his Holy Spirit to awaken the dead sinner, causing that sinner to be born again. And once that happens, once that sinner is then born again, the very first breath of new life is faith in Christ. It's like we've had some babies born in our church. It's awesome. I love that. But when the babies come out, once that first breath, that first pressure on their lungs, that's that first life that they come into the world and, and they take that breath. It's the same thing with being born again. When we come into the world, the first breath we take is faith. First cry we make is God be merciful to me, the sinner, right? So it's repentance and faith. And that is of necessity, like I said, of turning away from sin, which is repentance. That's why we speak of faith and repentance really in the same breath. There's two sides of the same coin. Exercising biblical faith is the essence of repentance. And just as repentance is the exercise of true faith, okay? And that's what explains verses, maybe some for some of you have been puzzling, verses we read like in the book of Acts, like Acts 16, 14, which tells us that when Paul met Lydia, remember that? The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Did she pay attention first? No. The Lord opened her heart first, and then she paid attention. Apart from the Lord's work, Lydia would have remained dead in her trespasses and sins, like us all. Even clearer is what it says in Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard the stated intention of Paul and Barnabas, that is to take their gospel to the Gentiles, it says in Acts 13, 48, they began rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord. And get this, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Those and only those, they believed. Incredible. Now, all of that was review. And that brings us back to this issue of the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation. That term, Ordo Salutis, um, it refers to the redemptive elements that are involved in the salvation of a sinner. And they're listed there in order of logical priority. Okay, I, I want to make it clear that these are not temporal steps, like steps that happen one after the other in time. Like... This happens, and then five minutes later, or two months later, this happens. That's not what's going on here. There's a logical sequence that's going on here, and I'm going to list them for you again, starting with eternity past and then culminating in eternity future. So let's start with eternity past, predestination, unconditional election. Okay, all that happens in eternity past. So before time began, so there is no time, obviously temporal, um, is doesn't apply to prior to time before time began. But then come some other steps that happen in this life right now. Effectual calling is the first one. That takes some time as God by the Spirit is, He sends His Spirit to convict the world of, of sin and righteousness and judgment. That happens to us. It happens in time and space and experiences and it takes some time. But it's effectual. It's those whom God has called, he then justifies. Okay? Romans 8. So effectual calling, the next thing that happens in order for our salvation or conversion to take place is this, this really, what's a, you could almost say is in temporal terms, simultaneous. But logically, we split them up and we say this leads to this leads to this. Okay? So you got regeneration, faith, justification, and adoption. 
Okay, so regeneration, that miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, a miracle by which he makes us new creations in Christ. What counts for Galatians 6 is a new creation. That's what happens there in regeneration. That first breath of life is faith, which of necessity is also repentance, repentance and faith. As we believe in Christ, we are then justified. As God imputes our sin to Christ and imputes his righteousness to us, God justifies us. He drops the gavel and calls us, declares us righteous. And then he adopts us as sons. That begins a process now that we are you could say positionally sanctified, we're put into a position of holiness, that begins a process, an ongoing process that takes place from that moment all the way through the rest of our lives called sanctification. An ongoing process of being made more holy, made more and more conformed to Jesus Christ and his image. That, that's going to take place. God is going to make sure that we never are lost. He's going to preserve us to the very end. Um, that's called perseverance or preservation. You could use either term. And then that's going to culminate eternity future in glorification. Glorification, when we receive a, a redeemed body, um, we are free forever, not just from the, the uh, penalty and the power of sin, which happens now, but also the presence of sin will be completely taken away as we are glorified and we are made completely like Christ forever. That's glorification. Okay, so none of that really should be surprising to any of you. Uh, you've, you've been around here for quite some time, and you know, you know all this, but, um, but maybe just hearing it ordered out like that is a little bit different. So God predestined us for salvation, Romans 8.29, pro orizo. He marked out beforehand. He elected us, Ephesians 1.4. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And after that, uh, in time and space, as I said, God called us to salvation. He regenerated us by the Holy Spirit. We responded to this effectual calling by faith. And that's all summarized there in Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So that call of God was effectual. It culminated in our regeneration. And that's exactly... What Jesus taught Nicodemus about regeneration in John 3, 1 through 8. Regeneration is what opened our hearts to believe the gospel, enabled us to believe and repent. So on the basis of that faith, God justified us. He declared us righteous by faith. He then adopted us. He's now sanctifying us. He'll continue to do so to the very end. That's perseverance, which is going to culminate with our glorification. Okay, so that's the order of salutus we understand biblically. I want you to see this illustrated, okay, in Scripture. Let's turn over to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. You remember, this is I'm the resurrection and the life chapter, where Jesus, do you, do you remember the main event that Jesus does in John 11? Raises Lazarus. Raises Lazarus from the dead. That's where we're going to go, okay? John 11, and you can find your way to verse 17. Jesus had just told his disciples very, very plainly, Look, Lazarus has died. Um, for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there, so that you may believe. He's about to show that the power of the life-giving Spirit of God resides in him as well. This is a powerful, I mean, there's so much here, but we can only scratch the surface, okay? So let's read, starting in verse 17 of John 11. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. That's a problem, right? 
there's decay going on. So he'd been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Isn't that a fascinating confession coming out from Martha, who, oh, Martha, Martha, you're troubled about so many things, but really only one thing is necessary. Look, at she's got it right now. She, said, she makes the same great confession that Peter did in Matthew 16. And Jesus said, Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but who? My Father who's in heaven. God's at work in Martha. She believes. I do believe. What's happened in her? Regeneration. She believes. John 5.26, Jesus said, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So in order to demonstrate this life-giving resurrection power, Lazarus had to go into the grave. And he had to be there long enough that his death and decay was beyond all doubt. Okay? He's been there four days. Look at Luke. Or, uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm in, I'm in Luke in my head. John 11:38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, and just, almost just like Peter, you know, he made the good confession, and then he says, Lord, no, you'll never die. Get behind me, Satan. So here's, here's Martha. She gets it. She believes. She does. But she's not getting it, right? So here's, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted his eyes, lifted up his eyes, and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. A little explanation in the case the father was wondering, hey, why are you saying that? I know. You know? Oh, I just want you to know. It's for these people. So verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, did the dead Lazarus, no heart beating, no pulse, there are no nerves that are stimulated by input, there's nothing sending signals to be interpreted by the brain, no brain waves at all. Nothing but dead, decaying tissue, and it was starting to stink. 
So did this dead Lazarus decide to wake up at just the right moment, listen out for Jesus' command, and then respond in faith and obedience? Totally. That's ludicrous, right? <laughs> just take off your bracelets and stop uh, some of your bad theology. <laughs> But what it, so so let me ask you what had to happen first before Lazarus's dead ears could hear anything in other words what was the real miracle and when did it happen sometime before he called him Lazarus had to be alive so that he could hear him no <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's effectual call and then regeneration. So he called them and that created life in Lazarus. Mm. <laughs> Who's on Gary's side? <laughs> when he called him, he heard him. He called him, he heard him, I know. It was instantaneous. <laughs> but he wasn't smelling, so this happened long before. Well, we don't he know had, if he there's responded. no odor in the, when they... <laughs> <laughs> Is the hint in the verse, though, where it says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me? Mm -hmm. So Jesus is saying, I've already asked for this. I've already... Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that that's the hint, <laughs> but, um, but uh, you're thinking along the right track. Let's... Uh, again, who, who else? Yeah, Nick? I, I can see Brett's point because it's like, I mean, when God when God's, uh, creates, he speaks. Mm -hmm. He speaks and then things are created and things happen. So, and it's the words that have the power. Or that he, yes! That he uses. Yeah, it says... <laughs> it says... By the word of God, the words create the hearing. Okay. <laughs> I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> first he calls. First he calls. What's that book that came out? Jesus <laughs> Calling. <right? laughs> That's not where I'm going. <laughs> Anybody else want to jump in the fray here? Lazarus came out, and he came out. Yeah. So, what's the difference between what Gary's saying, what Brett's saying? Okay. <laughs> Gary's saying that Lazarus woke himself up inside. No, I'm not. <laughs> you know, when your when your kids grow up, man, they just become nightmares, don't they? Start interpreting your words all wrong. <laughs> Okay, so so it, you know I think what Brett was was saying is it sounded like what you said was he was awake in the tomb before Jesus called, but that's not really what you're saying. No, I know that. Just just like who said God said let there be light. Yeah, Nicholas. That, that's said. it. God said Lazarus wake up and he woke up. Yeah. It's, it's, they're parallel verses, I think. Well, yeah, I think I think what. Yeah, I think we're saying the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get the secret handshake after. <laughs> so, 
so listen, um, G- Jesus, um, Lazarus was not, a, we know Lazarus was not awake. Jesus said clearly, look, he's dead. Okay, so there's no liberalizing interpretation of this that says, well, they went to the wrong tomb or there's a back door and Lazarus came in and happened to wander by wrapped up in grave clothes or, you know, there's just no we can't go down that route. We have to we have to take the text as it says. And the text says he was dead. And then Jesus called and made him alive. And so there is a there is an and that's what I was trying to say is there is an effectual calling that is going to result in what God sends his word out to do. When he sends his word out to create life, that's what's going to happen. Let there be light, and there was light. Instantaneous. So the the, the word has its own power. Now, we're not going to go into the word of faith movement or the faith word faith movement or whatever and, and say that we have that power and we just... Our words are like thought bubbles, and when we speak them out, we speak things into existence, like Rolls Royce or whatever. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about God having life in himself, and Jesus has life in himself, John 5, 26. And when he speaks, life happens. That's what happened here. So you see, in Lazarus, now, this is an illustration, because Lazarus, was raised from the dead, but did he die again? Yeah, we don't see Lazarus walking around the Holy Land, you know, with a bunch of followers. He died again, but he was raised when Jesus was raised, right? So Lazarus, this, 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 this right here is an illustration of his power, of the kind of resurrection power that he, the first fruits, has when he's raised from the dead. And God raises him from the dead, and we, the, you know, he's the first fruits, and then we who uh, are, you know, who are alive and remain will be caught up with them in the air and then all the rest of us will go as well. So this is the power that he has in himself to speak things into existence, to speak life into existence where there was no life. So, but putting this into spirit, now that's the, the physical analogy. This is the physical illustration. What happens spiritually is this effectual call leads to life, regeneration, Faith, obedience happens. It all just happens instantaneously, simultaneously, in a moment. That's what you had with Lazarus. There's a moment when he's a corpse, and then all of a sudden he's hearing the call of Jesus and he's getting up. Scott? I was wondering, do you think that's why Jesus like left right away when he like rose? Because... It was like a sign that he rose himself from the dead, or like by God, of course, and not the angel or somebody else or whatever. So it was like his power. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'm actually following your question uh, about why he would have left right away. But uh, let me uh, just looking at the time. Put your hands down because I'm not going to get to you. Um, <laughs> I got to plug through a couple things. Man, I actually tried to. Okay, so. (laughs) This is an illustration of regeneration, the response to the effectual call of God in Christ, the life-giving effect of the effectual call. 
the graphic portrayal of Jesus' power to raise the dead, all those who, whom God has given him, John 6, 44, I think you said that, Brett, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That pictures a lot, a, a span of time there, right? And that's why Jesus told Martha, John 11, 25, 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Have whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who believes, who lives and believes in me shall never die. So there's, a, there's this eternal quantity of life that begins with the eternal quality of life. When that life comes into a soul, comes into somebody, causes them to be born again, that only comes from God and it begins at the moment of salvation. So life from God comes first, then belief, then death, and then resurrection. Regeneration comes first, followed by saving faith, as Paul told Titus in Titus 3, 5 to 7. God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, with the result that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Okay? Now, I want to clarify a couple of things about this issue of an ordo salutis, okay? Um... We may not get to some some other things, but just let's let's walk through this carefully. I've I've, I've outlined those those points in the order salutis. Let me just make a couple of clarifying points. First, when we're talking about the order salutis, I want you to understand this is just a teaching tool. Okay, this is something that we something that happens in an instant. We're trying to get our arms around oh, what just happened. Okay, it's a theological summary. Um, of an aspect of soteriology, and it's meant to elucidate or clarify for you the mysterious workings of God by the Spirit and the salvation of the sinner. And we're not being speculative here when we're talking about this. We have biblical warrant for everything we're saying. Um, but we're not, but, but it's, it's something that um, in time and space as we experience it, we don't experience it in an ordo salutis way. <laughs> we experience it just as the subject, this is happening to us, we don't know how it happens. So we're going back to scripture and trying to kind of reverse engineer this and understand how it happened. There is biblical warrant for laying this out in an ordo salutis, as we talked about last time, Romans 8, 29 and 30, right? So you've got that ordo salutis there. But I want you to know, having said this, and, for, and for, if there's anybody here who's maybe a little bit lost or a little bit puzzled or, hey, I'm not getting this, look, your salvation is not dependent on having this memorized, okay? <laughs> You're okay. From our perspective, I think, Scott, you mentioned this last time. From our perspective, we simply believed what God said. We, we kind of woke up one day like, well, that makes some sense right there. <laughs> you know, our, we had our affections stirred for Christ. We had our affections uh, turned against the way we were, the way we were living, our sin. We started to say, man, I'm really starting to hate myself. I'm starting to see myself more clearly. I don't like what I see. Oh, but this Christ... You know, so and it's just dawning on us that's something that never dawned before. Our affections are stirred for Christ, and then we read about how he saved us, and that just stirs our affections even more. We then start learning from him. We start obeying his word, but we don't know what God's doing. We don't know what happened first, second, third in our hearts. It's just a, that's all a mystery to us. It's a little bit hidden. God is doing, though, some things. He's working silently and sovereignly. 
He's working behind the scenes and before the foundation of the world to make what we're experiencing a reality in time and space. That's what's going on. It's certainly true, uh, as Donald Gray Barnhouse used to say, just listen to this. He said, imagine a cross like the one on which Jesus died, only so large that it had a door in it. And over the door were these words from Revelation, whosoever will may come. Those words represent the free and universal offer of the gospel. By God's grace, the message of salvation is for everyone. Man, every man, woman, and child who will come to the cross is invited to believe in Jesus Christ and enter eternal life. On the other side of the door, a happy surprise awaits the one who believes and enters. From the inside, anyone glancing back can see these words from Ephesians written above the door, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Election is best understood in hindsight, for it is only after coming to Christ that one can know whether one has been chosen in Christ. Those who make a decision for Christ find that God made a decision for them in eternity past. Does that help clarify it? It did for me um, when, I come, when I wrestled some, some with this doctrine um, to understand that um, I told my dad flat out, I said, I must not be chosen. Laughs on me, right? Turns out I was. I just had to get through that cross and look back and realize what had happened to me. So that's what we're trying to do here. In, in unpacking this Ordo Salutis, we're trying to recognize and learn what God has actually done, not just what we experience. Our experience is one thing, but our experiences are subjective. They're subject to wrong interpretation. We don't want to go passing off our experiences and saying, here, come to Christ based on here, my experience of this, um, based on my testimony and all that. We want to say, what has God actually done? We want to pre-preach to them the gospel. But they're not going to understand the whole chosen before the foundation of the world part until they've been saved. Okay? So why do you think, here's the question, why do you think it's so crucial to recognize the sovereignty of God in salvation when we engage in the privilege and responsibility of evangelism? Why do you think we need to know this and understand this? Scott? Because we need to recognize that it's his on top. power and not ours. Mm -hmm. It's his own doing and it's not ours. Good. We could pre pretty much move on. <laughs> we need to recognize it's his doing and not ours. Why is that important? So salvation has become work. So salvation has become work. But I'm talking about for us, for evangelism. We're not responsible for anybody's salvation. That's up to God. Karen said, we're not responsible for anybody's salvation. That's up to God. And why is that important to us? There. I saw Josh first. Go ahead. So we keep doing it. So we don't go, after a couple of times, when we don't go, I stink at this. I'm going to do something different. So we keep doing it. Help me to understand the connection between salvation being up to God and God alone and why we keep doing it. Why do we keep doing it? It's a command. Okay. I can through I can make myself do a lot of stuff I've found. Okay? I can make myself do a lot of stuff that's very unpleasant. So if it's just a command, and it's true, it's a command, but what is it about? It's not up to me, it's up to God that keeps me going and obeying the command. It's it's trusting the Lord to do the growth. 
I, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. What is it that kept Paul planting and Apollos watering, though? That's what I'm trying to... We don't know who's going to see the Ephesians verse because God's all-powerful. He makes that choice. We can't even fathom or understand it. Okay, good. We don't know. So we keep going. But if you're doing it in the Spirit, it's God's words anyway through you. And so, honestly, it depends on if it's a human work or a work of the Lord. Because if I'm doing evangelism as a human work, it's always doing the stuff. But when I'm doing it under the, the Spirit, it doesn't, it's God's words through me. It's not mine. Okay, so um, we're going in another direction with this conversation. The What I would say is that if I, if an unbelieving cultist gives me the essence of the gospel, not in the spirit, obviously, but I have the essence of the gospel from the things that he said or written, I can be saved. God spoke through a donkey. God spoke through a donkey. So not, not just talking about the effect of spirit-filled evangelism, even though that's important for us. Uh, Doris? We don't know who's chosen. We don't know who's chosen. That's what Wes said. So that, that motivates us. So good. Uh, go to Lee and then Brett. There's a reciprocal joy in love when we do something that we are supposed to be doing that brings joy to the heart of the person that we're doing it for. Yeah. And it's not just duty. It's something much deeper than that. Yeah. And part of our relationship with God is to announce his love to other people as we've experienced it, and that increases our joy. Okay, good, yeah. So, so there is a joy in the duty and a duty of the joy. It's they, they really do work hand in hand, and I would say that even sometimes it's just duty, the fact that it's written there, I don't feel like forgiving so-and-so. But God commands me to forgive, and what right do I have to hold anything? And so I, out of duty... Deal with my heart and say, I gotta forgive. And then I find when I forgive, a flood of joy comes over me to say, What was I thinking trying to hold on to this sin? That was so stupid. I am so thankful to be on the right page with the Lord. So sometimes it is duty driving us into it. Sometimes it's pure joy. Sometimes it's really hard though, and especially when you get a lot of hand in the face, no, 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 you're an idiot. What is it that keeps us going? We know that, yes, we are motivated because we don't know who's chosen. So let me cut to the chase. Um, you, you guys aren't wrong in what you're saying at all. This is all correct. Br oh, Brett, go ahead. I was just going to say that it's a, it's a fragrant aroma to, that rises up to God as we preach the gospel. Okay, so there is... Regardless of whether people believe or not, he is glorified when we preach it. Fantastic. So being satisfied and rejoicing in just the fact that these lips can speak truth. If that's all you're looking for is the joy of pleasing God by speaking his word rightly. You don't care who does what. That's up to God. Obviously, we want to see sinners saved. We have compassion for them grinding out their lives in sin. But that's not what we're doing it for. We're doing it because God is pleased, and we love when God is pleased and we're pleased. I want to come back to this, though. Then why is it so crucial to recognize the sovereignty of God in the salvation of sinners when we engage in this privilege and responsibility of evangelism? Why is it so important to recognize this? And this is, this is what hits me. Knowing that God is sovereign over salvation creates in us a gentle confidence 
a humble boldness and an excited anticipation without any fear or anxiety. Knowing that he's in charge, as you guys have all said, that he has chosen them before the foundation of the world, and all those whom he has chosen will believe. We're guaranteed success with the ones God wants us to have success with. So when the people turn away, hey, maybe I've planted a seed, and you never know what will happen in time. I walk away from that conversation, and who knows what happens. That's God's work, though. I rejoice in the doing of it. If I thought somebody else's salvation was a matter of my effectiveness as a witness or my skill in discerning their obstacles and removing those obstacles, or even worse, if it was a matter of the sinner's ability to exercise faith, a sinner who's like Lazarus, dead and stinking in a tomb, I'd be paralyzed with discouragement. Listen, and this is the, the key issue I want to bring you to with regard to this whole thing of God's sovereignty and all that is hope versus discouragement. When you have the wrong theology, you burn out in discouragement so quickly. When you have the right theology, you're carried forward in hope to hope to hope because you trust in God. You believe in him. Since I know that we're all hopelessly lost on our own and that only our only hope, our every hope is in God who gives life to the dead, who will accomplish all his good pleasure, then I have every confidence that he's going to save all those whom he has chosen. I'm just the human instrument. I'm a necessary instrument in this whole thing, to be sure, but I'm simply the means that God uses to proclaim the message of the good news, that sinners can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 13, I'm confident in God that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But as I keep reading, I come to understand that God is pleased to use means. Me, me. the means, this is where we come in. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So we know if we plant that gospel seed, God will produce salvation in his elect. We have, that. He have, his, we have his word on it. He stakes his name on that. I have every confidence. So that's the first clarification that I wanted to make. Uh, just don't look back, because that clock is off. <laughs> um, but that's the first clarification. I know. I do repeat that all the time. I know. But that, no one's fixed the clock. That's why I keep saying it. That's the first clarification. I have a couple more, so stick with me just real quick. I'm going to burn them through, uh, and then we'll pick up next time. Um, First clarification, outlining a biblical order salutis. It's a teaching tool. It's a tool for your edification. It's there to strengthen your confidence in the God whose will it is to save his people. We, though, we get the privilege of being his messengers, his ambassadors, sent out from him to proclaim the message that's going to awaken faith in those whom he has chosen, those whom he is calling through our witness. A few more things to say just to clarify here. Second. In clarifying a biblical ordo salutis, I just want to say this again, that we're talking about logical prior priority in much of this and not temporal priority. So don't get caught up in time and steps and all that, moving in a sequence of time from one to the next. 
Truth is, much of this happens in an instant. It's impossible for us to discern any movement of time between calling, regeneration, faith, repentance, justification, adoption. Temporally, predestination, election occur in eternity past. Sanctification is post-salvation, an ongoing process that starts with salvation, ends at death. Glorification starts at death, continues through eternity. Even calling can happen over some time. But the point of salvation, that is the effect of the calling, the effectual nature of it, the regeneration, faith, justification, adoption, all that happens in an instant. We summarize all of that by calling it conversion. One word, conversion. Okay? Third clarification. When we talk about the prior necessity of regeneration, that is to say it's, it's logically pr prior to the exercise of faith, I want to make it clear that what we're not saying is that the sinner is not making a decision. Okay, that's a double negative on purpose. We are saying that the sinner makes a decision. The sinner does make a decision for Christ. He does make a choice. But we also have to emphasize that he cannot make a decision for Christ without first receiving life from God. Okay? God must enable the dead sinner to make a decision of faith by causing him to be born again. So apart from God's regenerating grace, that unregenerate sinner is just as dead as Lazarus in the tomb. A lifeless corpse, just rotting and stinking, spiritually speaking. Fourth point. That's a good one to put on a bracelet. <laughs> Rotting and stinking, stinking, spiritually speaking. Hey, why are you wearing that? Because that's you, pal. <laughs> Do you know Christ? says he stinketh. He stinketh. <laughs> that's, my, that's my memory verse for the day. Right. Um, so fourth, the fourth point, and I just want to make this clear, because whenever people start talking about God being sovereign in salvation, they say, oh, that's an evangelism killer. <laughs> Look, this is, none of this is meant to keep us from evangelism, right? Let me just point out that we're talking about this in the context of a course on apologetics and evangelism, okay? So we got to keep all of this in very clear perspective, that good theology actually drives and motivates evangelism and apologetics. It does not hamper it. I do understand that there are some people who wrongly try to emphasize the sovereignty of God and salvation, and they actually say stupid things like, so it's actually an offense for you to go out and spread the gospel because God doesn't need you and your means. Like, what? You're denying Romans 10. You're denying so much scripture. I mean, Paul, Paul was a real idiot for running all over the, all over the Roman Empire trying to make converts and spread the gospel. I just, I just don't have any patience for people who want to want to go off in, in one error or another or just run into one ditch or another and try to make you know, twice the sons of hell that they are. So <clears throat> just understand that we, we're teaching all of this not for the purpose of thwarting or stifling any evangelistic impulse at all. We're doing this because we want you to be strengthened and confident and joyful in going out and having the right goals and right expectations when you go out to evangelize. Because honestly, if you embrace this and understand it deeply, it's going to change your life. It's going to change your witness. And you're actually going to rejoice even when you get that proverbial door slammed in your face. That's, that can be some discouraging stuff. And especially when people are close, especially when it's family. Man, it's so hard. It's painful. Lifelong friends that you have, you know, who are just 
turning away from you and everything. That's that's difficult. But that then drives you closer to your savior, savior, you know, to to draw near to him, knowing that he also went outside the camp and was isolated, cut off from us. Okay, so two comments, Gary, and then Wayne. Okay, I just want us to understand just the power of the word because when Paul made the comment while I was in prison about people who were complaining about his gospel, he said whether they're preaching Christ out of envy or not, the objective is that Christ is being preached. He understood it was the power of the word, not just the, the presenter. And right. I think we need to understand that there's, there's a reason to use the word of God as we share the gospel. That's where the power is, not in my reasoning. Or That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's not in our cleverness. Or We're going to talk about some, as we already have, talked about some pretty powerful presuppositional apologetic you know, tools that we can use and arguments we can make and stuff. But that's not what saves. It's not our tools or our cleverness or our good arguments. It's the gospel that saves. Wayne. I just wanted to drive home two implications that you've kind of gone over, but I think it's, it's really important that everybody gets them. So uh, it, speak, speak very loudly. In evangelism, uh, one implication is that there are going to be some people that you feel are just right on the cusp, right? Or they're ready for the word, or you, you just really want to reach that person, and it's not going to work. And you should realize it's not you, right? It's not necessarily that you did it wrong or whatever. Uh, it can be really frustrating, you know, but one of the things that we should take away from this is the realization that it's on God to choose whom he will uh, and that he's going to use that for his glory, for his ends. Um, and I'll add to that that he's going to do it in the time that he will, yep. not in your time. The, the second thing is there are a lot of people on this earth that stinketh and, uh, you know, we once did too. And so, you know, we, you know, it's not on us to choose necessarily uh, who we prefer to take the message of God to, um, but that everyone should hear it. Excellent. Good, good. Okay, so uh, we'll go to Josh and Scott. I just wanted to add a little to what you said, the danger when we, when we lose sight of God's sovereignty and evangelism at best is that when we start thinking it's about us or about their response, at best we burn out. At worst, what we usually see is changing the message to something that an unregenerate person will respond to. Will accept. That's true. Yeah, yeah. We see both things happening. Some people just silencing their witness, crawling into a corner and don't want to get out there anymore. That happens. And other people say, I'm going to go out anyway, but let me find a way to make it more palatable. <laughs> Yeah, it's good. Scott. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Excellent. That's true. God prepared good works, which can we call evangelism a good work? Okay. Driven by the spirit through our life. We can call that a good work. He prepared that beforehand that we should walk in it. So when you have that impulse of God to share the gospel, go do it. Go do it. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the time tonight. We thank you for the things that we've been able to clarify and talk about. And uh, we're, we are um, 
not sufficient for these things. And, and that's really as it's meant to be, because all of our sufficiency is found in Christ. All of our dependence is found in the Holy Spirit. All our confidence is found in you, Father. So please help us to, to go out and, and spread this good news of the gospel. Help us not to be shy, but to be bold, but humbly so. Help us to be gentle with sinners, knowing that we were once like them. And um, I just pray that you'd help us to be winsome in our presentation of the gospel, to actually put the gospel on display in our manner of speaking, showing love and compassion for the lost. Thank you again for this dear group of people. Thank you for what you're doing in our church. And we just ask that you would save and sanctify many through the testimony of this church. In Jesus' name, amen.